What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show I talk to Julia Roberts and her co-star Myhala about their new Netflix movie, Leave the World Behind, about a family holiday that goes awry after a mysterious blackout, as well as its director, Sam Esmail, of Mr. Robot fame. We review the much-talked-about Maestro, where Bradley Cooper plays Leonard Bernstein, and Ken Wardrop on his new different festive film so this is christmas i'm open on twitter john underscore farty or you can email me screen time at newstalk.com this show is available as a podcast every friday at 5 p.m on newstalk.com or the newstalk app powered by go loud and it's on the radio every saturday at 6 p.m here on newstalk good weekend to you all hope you're doing well and life is treating you well i had a very busy week this week i flew to london to interview the aforementioned julia roberts and i was hoping Hosting Moncrief, we'd been away for the weekend. I, I, I know you're there going. Oh, poor little radio man! Is he tired from his plane trip? But uh, I'm just telling you, I was run ragged this week. But I'm not complaining. That's the important thing. Now we've a busy show, and I want to get to matters at hand. But I just have to say, like so many people, I am. Um, decidedly sad about the sad passing of Shane McGowan. This is a film show, but uh, just as a citizen of this country, it's just important to mention that remarkable songwriting and singing talent. And, you know, often singers are referred to as poets or songwriters are referred to as poets and you go, come on, man, it's just pop music. But Shane McGowan was a poet. And, And I think just as an Irish person, it's almost those songs are part of our citizenship nearly fairy tale and rainy night in soho and uh, oh the, the the list goes on and on so it's just i just want to say you know he is and was such a talent and from a movie perspective there was a movie two years ago which you can find and rent online a crock of gold a few rounds with shane mcgowan which you can find online as i say which will give you a great you know refresher in, in who he was so now and you've heard it many times in the last few days but i have to say r.i.p the great shane mcgowan now this week i was watching this why are you like this What do you get out of being so angry all the time? Every day, all day, my job, my whole job is to understand people well enough so that I know how to lie to them so I can sell them things they don't really want. And when you study people like that, when you really see the way they treat each other, well, you're no dummy. You see what they do, and they do it without even thinking about it. I did it to you and your dad, and I don't even really know why. We f*** every living thing on this planet over and think it'll be fine because we use paper straws and order the free-range chicken. 
Now that is a clip from a new Netflix movie which will be released globally on the 8th of December called Leave the World Behind. You heard Julia Roberts there and her co-star Mahala. So this is kind of an apocalyptic thriller from the writer and director Sam Esmel who gave us Mr. Robot on TV. Julia Roberts there and her husband Clay played by Ethan Hawke. They rent this fancy house out in Long Island along with their kids but their vacation it's a bit funny when a character called G.H., who's played by the great Marshala Ali, and he's with his daughter, played by the great young actress Myhala, arrive in the middle of the night and they bring with them news of a mysterious cyber attack and they want to come in to the house that they claim is theirs. And the two families reckon with a kind of disaster coming, but also a distrust of each other, forcing everyone to come to terms with their place in this kind of collapsing world. There's a huge amount of stuff going on. It's a it's a kind of psychological thriller, but it's also a movie about communications breakdown and disaster and some really affecting pieces of cinema happening that I, that I won't get into because it's kind of a spoiler, but like there's an oil tanker at the start of the movie that runs aground in kind of a shocking fashion. Great stuff in it, but also a real interesting character study. And chief among those characters is Julia Roberts, who plays Amanda, who, as I say, is the matriarch of this family. And she's kind of unhappy with her lot and we're not entirely sure why and doesn't respond well to Marshala Ali and Myhala when they show up at her house. So Myhala, she's kind of known just by the first name, one of those people, impressive, Myhala, who I spoke to before on this show, plays the young daughter of Marshala Ali, who's might be seen as a bit of a punk in this. She is a great actress. I spoke to her earlier in this year. She was in the most recent series of Black Mirror in that great episode, Lock Henry. She was in that great TV series called Industry, as well as the movie's Bodies, bodies, bodies. And she stars opposite the aforementioned Julia Roberts, who decidedly needs no introduction. And I spoke to both Malhalla and Julia Roberts in London earlier in the week. Julia, if I could start with you, the thing about your character in this is I wasn't sure if I liked her or not. Mm, uh, me either. Well, that's what, I, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. She's great, but we're not sure if she's a good woman or a bad woman mm. or somewhere in the middle. Is that the kind of meat and potatoes for an actress when you get a role like this and it's so unclear what or who she is? Well, yeah, because you want to find that balance. I mean, you don't... I don't want her to just be unlikable, but there are yeah. things about her that are quite unlikable and I think she's quite suspicious of people and um, just her mind works in a way that... Uh, is very different from my own. I'm sort of just give it all away from the beginning. And um, and uh, so it was fun to find the nuances of mm-hmm. her and still really believe that she's a, she's a good person and she, you know, loves her husband and she mm. has these nice kids and there's there's potential, but it just needs to be excavated a bit. Yeah, like us all, mate. Myhala, I suppose the same question to you because your character is the same. I guess there's like Ethan's character is maybe wholly good, <laughs> but your character is very nuanced as well. Was that the feeling you got from it when you read it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was like, yes, Ruth, you're right, go girl. I was like on her side from the beginning. Um, but yeah, I love I love a, a polarizing person. But more than that, like people are many things at once. You mm. know, 
well-intended, but maybe poorly executed. And I mean, but the most interesting thing to me was like the way these two characters went head to head. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there was lots of truth and like rightness in both of their perspectives. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, and either of you can answer this, but you know, I, I couldn't help but read reviews about it. And I, I was aware of some of the subtleties in it, but people were talking about this undercurrent of race. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, that didn't come across to me necessarily. Did, did, did you see that in the material? Because lots of people have. Well, I mean, reading the book from the very beginning, mm. I think it's it's you see that undercurrent um, going the whole time. And for me, the scene at the door when Myhala mm. and Mahershala show up mm. in the middle of the night and the way that Sam shot it with that perspective where you could see both sides of the door mm. as it opens um, kind of two sides of a coin and, and how is this thing going to go mm. and... And so, I, I mean, I think we tried to create that sort of tension and subtext a little bit. And it's not, it, I think it is as much suspicion of all people. Mm. And then with a nice little current of of race mm. within that. Mm. And class maybe as well, I guess, mm-hmm. you know. And Mahala, the, the interactions with Julia, it, it's funny because you start off really not liking each other. And then mm. without giving any kind of spoilers you know, the SH1T starts to hit the fan and you kind of have to get over yourselves and prejudices about class or race or whatever and work towards a a common end. I guess that's Mm. part of the message of the movie, if there is one. Sure, yeah. I mean, I I think in all things, there does come a point where you're like, okay, well, too much bad stuff is happening and Mm. we don't have a choice but to work together if we want to survive, you know, if you want to go to extremes. Um, But yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like Ruth and what's her name? Amanda. (laughs) I forgot too. (laughs) What's that girl's name? (laughs) Ruth and Amanda are actually more alike than they are Mm. different Mm -hmm. on like a personality level. Mm -hmm. Like, they both are on edge about each other for different reasons, but it kind of comes out in the same sort of mm. voicing. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, so I feel like in the end, really all just the same. We all just want to get along. <laughs> yeah. Mayala, I mentioned as we came in that I interviewed you for another Netflix show, Black mm. Mirror. Mm-hmm. And we talked about industry during that. And I saw you last year in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. And that's three really good choices, including this, Mm -hmm. in the last two years. I'm wondering, Julia, Mahala's star is very much on the rise. Mm -hmm. Yours has never dimmed, so. True. But do you feel, do you give her advice about this point in her career? She does not need my advice, number one. (laughs) And number two... She's a force. She came into a situation where, you know, we stood in the kitchen together, the four of us and, you know, Ethan and Mahershala and I are all sort of established people. We come into a room, people know what we're going to have in our toolkit. Mm -hmm. And here's this like gorgeous girl standing there. And then she just like unpacks this incredible performance. And it was, it just brings me joy. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make me think to sort of tell her anything, but well done. You know, she's doing it all right. 
There you go. And I think we got that on camera. I'm going to cry. I'm not far off either. <laughs> Julia, I'm sure your days are spent with people like me talking to you about all these movies that, and I don't want to age you, but some of them that people have grown up with at all. And there's a million of them flying around in my head and we don't have time. But I'm just wondering, there are certain scenes and it's probably an Irish thing, but in Michael Collins, mm -hmm. there's a gorgeous moment. I'm sorry to Irish it up, but anyway, there's a, a heartbreaking moment where Aidan Quinn comes to you and you kind of go, don't, this is kind of over because yeah. it's Michael. And you're like, I don't even know if he knows or if he ever will. And it, it's it's heartbreaking. And it's that's the scene for me of all your movies that if someone told me I had two minutes to interview Julia Roberts, that's the one that comes to mind. Is there anything about that scene that you remember? Well, it just thrills me that that's what you um, reference. I mean, it's a gorgeous movie. And Neil mm. Jordan, who's such an incredible filmmaker. And I just think that's one of those movies that I constantly was sort of pinching myself because... It was just such a beautiful time and all of us together and just sort of great friends making this movie. And it was it's so beautiful to look at mm. and so heartbreaking. And um, yeah, I, I loved I loved making that movie. I used to teach Italian and Spanish kids for three summers long. And every Friday I was a kind of lazy teacher and I used to put that on for them. So mm. I've actually seen it about 30 times. Wow. So it is. That's it, 29 it, times more than myself. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Leave the World Behind is a fantastic movie and continued success to both of you. Thank, Thank you. Julia Roberts there discussing Michael Collins and of course her new Netflix movie, Leave the World Behind. And you also heard me talking to her co-star, Mihala, there as well. Uh, rising, rising young actress. Just to say, I did show Spanish and Italian students Michael Collins every Friday, but they were a new class of students that would come every week. And I taught them very well all week long. And I just thought on a Friday afternoon, we could Irish it up and maybe I could take a little break. But there you go. But more importantly, Leave the World Behind is what we were talking about there. Now, it was directed by Sam Esmail, a great director who made the TV show Mr. Robot, starring Remy Malik. He also did the Amazon series Homecoming, amongst other things, which Julia Roberts stars in. Uh, a really interesting film director. And I also had a chat with him. So, Sam, I don't want to give any spoilers. Uh, you guys hate that, which is understandable. Yeah. But there are some really dramatic moments and really dramatic moments with things, let's say. And I think we can get, and some of them are like replaying in my mind since I've seen the movie. But one of them, I think we can spoil of sorts at the start, is where an oil tanker mm -hmm. runs aground. And it, it it's kind of petrifying the mm. way it's captured, you know? Is the, is the point that you're making in a lot of this that, you know, things, gadgets could go wrong? Yeah, absolutely. And I think specifically in with the scene like that, um, that we're with our characters. We're not mm. in the middle of, we're not suddenly thrown in the middle of an action sequence. No. <laughs> it's, you're on a beach with, uh, with uh, a family and it seems innocuous. Mm. It seems like something that you would naturally do. Yeah. You're seeing a ship, uh, a ship sort of come towards you, and you're not necessarily reacting mm. because you're thinking, well, obviously that's going to uh, that's going to uh, stop or turn or whatever. Mm. And then it doesn't. <laughs> and I love that sort of slow moving 
train wreck that's happening, but yeah. that sensation, because I feel like that's so relatable. And mm. when something's really relatable like that, it can be very visceral in yeah. a film. Yeah, it is very relatable. And not that you need me to explain your movie to you, but the idea of an oil tanker leaving the sea to come to us, it's kind of petrifying. And it's funny, on the plane over, I was thinking about the Wi-Fi on the plane and if I wanted to use it or not. It was funny, the, the film has had an impact in yeah. that way. You know, I, I, I was saying to Julia Amahala that I read a few reviews. I don't know why I don't usually do that, but people are mentioning the Hitchcockisms mm -hmm. in it. Uh, and I could see the North by Northwest one. Mm -hmm. I could see the birds. Mm -hmm. And then, and I'm sorry I missed this. I think they were intimating that you're on the beach somewhere in a Hitchcockian moment. Is that correct? No? The, yes, or am there, I not meant to say no, it? No, 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 no. There is a little Hitchcockian cameo that I make. Okay. So is, does that stuff just bleed in or are you putting in Easter eggs for people? Oh, well, you know, that's a that's a great question because it's funny. My production designer, Anastasia White, and I, you know, what we do is we sort of do this sort of first pass. Like, we're telling the story. Mm. We're needing these elements to tell the story. But like with a scene, when I do scene work with the cast, you know, there's the line of dialogue. There's, you know, the intention behind the dialogue. But then we talk about the subtext, what's yeah. not being said, what's yeah. not being heard, what's yeah. not being seen. And that should be felt underneath everything. Absolutely, and so yeah. I do. we do the same thing visually. So okay. you call them Easter eggs, which obviously that's what people call them. But for me, <laughs> I, like to, I like to call it the subtext of the film. So yeah. visually throughout the movie, there are things that are hinting at mm. uh, the tone of the film. They're yeah. speaking to the themes of the film. And yeah. we like to include all of that. I'm not saying necessarily my cameo <laughs> is, is some profound subtext, but um, in general, I think there are a lot of little Easter egg moments, yeah. as you as you call them, that are are kind of like a layer underneath the visuals. Yeah, they are. And it's funny. I was also saying to the guys that when I read the reviews, the element of race yeah. that a lot of people picked up on, and and I hadn't as much mm -hmm. to do with class and all. But I guess that's good in a way that people are going to take different things from this. I mean, when I read it, I thought, oh yeah, I guess there is that. But I mean, that's the point. The point that tone can affect people in different ways. Yeah, and you know, look, I've seen films and read books about racism in in sort of the overt yeah. manifestation of. We, I think we've all seen that. Um, but what I've never seen that I really wanted to explore here, and it was it was in the book too, was the sort of microaggression version of racism, mm. where it's not said, yeah. where it's sort of underneath, where it's sort of intimated, and where it's not even necessarily conscious to the characters. Yeah that they're behaving in this way, that there are these biases that are kind of lurking in the back of their minds and it's sort of coming out, but without their awareness. And I just thought that that, that's, that really worked well with the story because the story really is about how we're disconnected and how there are these barriers, especially in a moment of crisis mm. when we need to when we need to come together the most. And what are those barriers c coming from? Where where do they exist from? And I think they really are kind of stemming from these unconscious biases. Mm. I have been interviewing people for a long time now, and I'm not really the nervy type or anything like that. I did have a moment earlier with Julia Roberts when I walked in. I went, "It's Julia Roberts." Did did you? always want her because she brings this star power to yeah. things that in a way you wonder sometimes does it not that it would detract but just that she's so famous she's one of the world's most famous actresses was she always on your mind for this part instantly when i read okay. the book i thought of her and the re and i'll tell you why amanda is a very deeply flawed person yeah. and, and 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 i found her complicated and interesting because of her flaws but i thought 
for to sustain a, a, a two-hour runtime uh, with this person, I needed a, you know not only a brilliant actor but someone with the charisma mm. and star quality of yeah. a Julia Roberts to really channel the humanity. Yeah, that, that that's a very good point. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. You yeah. need star power for that to carry. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, she carries it, and so does so does everyone else. And uh, Marsha Ali, I just thought was amazing. Amazing, and, yeah. as he always is. I'm sure I'm not the first person to mention to you, but Friends is a motif. <laughs> in it yeah. uh, because Amanda's daughter is obsessed with watching it and she's out of time with the show she wasn't even born when it started and now you know five weeks ago I think it is the sad passing of right. Matthew Perry I presume you've been struck slightly by the strange dovetailing of that you know I, I what happened there is, is such a tragedy and yeah. obviously I've deepest condolences to his friends and family and I, I never actually once thought about the film in terms of that because yeah. that, that's such a tragedy that um, yeah that I just I just I just want to leave it at that sure it's it, it's a nice kind of a what would you say love letter to the show though so you're you're on the side of the angels that way sure. I would suggest tell me this I mentioned you know your uh, your are you saying you know machines probably could do us harm I know a bit about your career and I've seen your other things and you know they say all directors and you're one of those you know have one underlying obsession. Uh, it seems to me your one is and again I'm not the first person to suggest it is that we need to watch technology we really do the ghost in the machine is that is that the mind you're always looking into in some fashion? I would, I would tweak it a little bit I would tweak it in this way which is um, we need to watch us using technology. I don't think technology is a problem. I think it's it's us. It's how we use it. It's the human side of it that could get us into trouble. Mm -hmm. And for me, I do have an obsession about that because um, technology could be wonderful. It could yeah. be the thing that cures cancer and, and makes movies and makes movies and solves our energy problems, solves poverty. Um, but um, it's really about how we want to capitalize on it and yeah. um, and some of the choices we've made so far uh, have not been the best and uh, and for me I want to explore why and, yeah. and and that's always been my drive when it comes to that yeah well you really achieved it and leave the world behind it's fantastic thank so lovely you. to meet you lovely to meet you too. thanks thank a million you. thank you Sam Esmail talking to me there about the movie Leave the World Behind, which is on Netflix from December 8th, and he directed it. And it is based on a novel of the same name from about 10 years ago, which people raved about. I should also mention it's from the production company Higher Ground, which Michelle Obama and pres former President Obama are uh, the patrons of, the owners of, the producers of. So this has a, this has blessing from on high, you would say. So that is Leave the World Behind. Up next, the much-talked-about maestro, where Bradley Cooper plays Bernstein. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now, there is another Netflix movie that's also getting the cinema release as well as getting a later date on Netflix, which probably means they're hoping for awards. Let's be honest about it. The much-talked-about maestro, which sees Bradley Cooper play Leonard Bernstein. And as you know, this attracted some controversy because of a prosthetic nose Bradley Cooper was wearing for the movie. So it is in cinemas. It's going going to be on Netflix later in December. Is it any good? Well, a maestro of a different hue is arts critic and film critic 
Chris Wasser, who joins me now. I got tripped up there by my own <laughs> smart, smart arseness. Chris, maestro, uh, a lot of people very interested in it. What's what's going on, first of all? Is, 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 is it a standard biopic? It is and it isn't. And also, thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, but yeah, Bradley Cooper is not so much giving us a you know, cradle to the grave, but starting at 25 and sort of finishing around Leonard Bernstein's, uh, probably around the 60s, I think. Um, but it focuses mostly on the marriage between Leonard Bernstein and Felicia Montalegre, his wife, his actress wife. Um, so you have Bradley Cooper again, as he did in, in, in the star is born multitasking, you know, he is, you know, become this Hollywood multitasker extraordinaire at this stage. You know, he's directing, he's co-writing, he's co-fronting, he's producing. Uh, he says he spent six years just working on, on, on one sequence where he would be able to successfully, you know, conduct an orchestra uh, through Mahler's Second Symphony for six minutes, which is no easy feat. I don't know how he spent six years doing it, but still, <laughs> he's, um, he's doing an awful lot here. But uh, in terms of like focusing on the marriage, the story kind of jumps around, uh, but in a very, in, in, in its own little organized way. But we sort of begin at 25 when Bernstein receives a phone call that changes his life. And he is fast asleep when the phone rings. He answers, he's, uh, whatever's happening on the other end, it's it's making him nervous because he has to stop and light up a cigarette, which, you know, as we see throughout the two and two hours and a bit, he does that quite a bit. Um, but what, what, we, what we learn later on is that the guest conductor for that night with the New York Philharmonic had fallen ill, had the flu. And th- there were just hours to go until the performance. He actually slept late, Lenny, this was. And Lenny, who yeah. conducted an orchestra before, or at least was never the, the lead conductor, He's offered this gig that will change his life and he has no time to rehearse. He's no time to do anything but just say yes. He puts down the phone, draws back the curtain. We see that he has a lover in bed next to him and he just jumps around the room as though his life has just been made and in a way, and in a way it has. And in a very clever uh, uh, sequence, he sticks on this dressing gown, legs it down to the hall and we see that he's actually sleeping upstairs above in this little bedsit above Carnegie Hall. And I was sitting there, this is only the opening minutes, John, and I was thinking to myself, I don't care if this really happened or not. I know that Leonard Bernstein got his break after a guest conductor f- fell ill, but this whole sleeping above the hall, I don't know if it happened, but it doesn't matter. It's so exciting to watch. And that's the way the film moves. We, we then see him attending, you know, uh, a party where he leads, where he meets Felicia Montalegri. Um, you know, they they have this uh, romance for the ages. They, they, they marry. We fast forward into, you know, him becoming a household name because of, you know, West Side Story and also his conducting. Uh, we move into the period in his life where you know there's not enough room in the marriage for the both of them and it's all just about leonard and and his composing and his conducting career and how he's frustrated as a uh you know he's he's satisfied as a conductor but always frustrated as as a composer we move into you know his his various affairs with other men and how felicia started off their marriage saying she was okay with it but then realizes that she's not it just brings us all the way through this tumultuous marriage and this career that he was never truly satisfied with yeah, and it's no spoiler to say that he was gay, but yet they had a they had a marriage of understanding uh, until they didn't, I guess. So tell me this: I, I didn't get to see this. What would me interviewing Julia Roberts in London and blah blah blah? <laughs> but I have watched plenty of it. But when I was watching some clips, like this is a tribute to Cooper, but I want your take on it, having watched mm. the whole movie. At times, I thought Bernstein was being interviewed once or twice, that I was watching a documentary when he's sitting at the piano smoking. He seems great. Now, whether it's a, I don't know, an impersonation or whatever, but I, I thought in the bit, bits I've seen of it, he's very convincing as, as uh, larger than life Bernstein. 
Well, you know, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. It is an impersonation, and it's a glorious okay. impersonation. But it's aided in part by the work of Kazuhiro, who is this uh, Academy Award-winning me- uh, uh, prosthetic makeup designer, who's done an extraordinary job here. You know, you truly do believe that Bradley Cooper is, you know, an old man in this film's yeah. third act. Um, but it never really goes above this, despite the fact that, you know, he is just giving it his everything, especially when he's conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. And those scenes are just fabulous. They're just electric. You know, they really did move me. But when he is talking, when himself and and, and Felicia, when, when, when Cooper's uh, Lenny and uh, Carrie Mulligan's Felicia, when they're engaged in conversation or, or rouse, you, you see that Carrie Mulligan is acting. You know, or, or or giving an extraordinary, you know, performance, and you see that Cooper's giving this impersonation, and maybe that's just because he's just he's so focused on looking like and sounding like Leonard Bernstein, and that can be a bit of a problem, you know. So, so for the second time in his in his acting career, I think he's been upstaged by by his female counterpart. Obviously, I think I think Lady Gaga was actually the better performer in in The Star Is Born, um, but yeah, Miss Mulligan just steals the show from him. She is just brilliant here. She's she's an awful lot to do i mean she her character felicia she knows that her husband is a gay man and even before they marry she knows she says to him this is the life that we're going to lead and she convinces them both that it doesn't matter but at some point however it does and the infidelity takes its toll and also the fact that you know bernstein began as as felicia says he started to get sloppy you know he didn't really care about being seen and hurting her feelings so there's this knockout sequence in the middle where they they just tear strips out of one another uh you know like something out of uh uh, uh marriage story i think i've mentioned that film a lot in recent times or who's afraid who's afraid of virginia wolf which yeah. some could say marriage story goes all the way back to but we don't have to get into that <laughs> no absolutely but we should but do you know what we will get into just that that prosthetic for a minute now i was never i was never um distracted by it because as i said like it's just you you just see a fabulous makeup design um i don't think the controversy like the controversy for anyone who didn't know a lot of people said that you know this is an anti-semitic stereotype and it's something akin to jew face because cooper was wearing this large prosthetic nose because you know even leonard bernstein's family came out and they said that their father had a large nose but the family worked alongside you know cooper during this film and they defended the decision they said they were absolutely fine with it and that they believe that their lay father would have been fine with it so at no point during this film did i ever think well that that nose looks ridiculous but there were yeah. there, there were points where i did think i don't think it was necessary for him to go so far to look like it in doing so it kind of takes a little bit away from the performance Okay, so he's getting lost in the makeup slightly at times, it seems. And okay, so Kerry Mulligan is a knockout as she oh, yeah. often is. Uh, I, I think she's a terrific actress. Tell me this: is it drowning? And I mean, in the right sense of it, in music, is it is it a wash with music? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. little hints. It's not a film that shows you everything. In fact, it actually fills in a few gaps with, and this usually annoys me, John. I think we've talked about this before. You know, when news reports fill in the gaps, yeah. when a film jumps a few years, or you might hear something on the radio and you're thinking, oh, that's just, it's sometimes, if it's, if it's, sometimes I see it as kind of lazy exposition. With this, I didn't mind it so much because we were jumping ahead a few years and we needed some sort of sense of where we were in this time with Lenny and Felicia. And a little reporter, or he'd be doing an interview, which would say, you know, how many awards West Side Story was nominated for. So little things like that, I actually kind of appreciate it. Because if you're going to cover 40 years, then you need to kind of hold our hands some of the time. Um, yeah. But, you know, there are little uh, snippets here and there where it's, oh, that's a little bit from the on the waterfront uh, score. Oh, that's a little bit from West Side Story. Just to let us know 
that you know this is what uh, Leonard Bernstein had been doing. I should say that the the film it's very much um, the first half for me was just electric and I, I i thought the first half is all shot in chris monochrome um and the aspect ratio changes throughout the film too so the first half is a little bit boxy it's all in black and white and this is where cooper puts his best foot forward because the ideas are phenomenal sometimes it breaks into a little bit of a, a half musical itself not not that characters are are singing to one another but cooper Cooper's Bernstein is showing uh, Mulligan's Felicia what he's been doing. And in showing this work in progress on the stage, we kind of get lost in that production as though, as though the film has turned into a bit of a song and dance show. So okay. it's vibrant. It's, it's, you know, the ideas are phenomenal. It has this sense of adventure. It's actually when it switches to color, once we get into the 60s and once we go into the, the, the latter years of, of the pair's marriage, that it kind of becomes a little bit of a conventional biopic. And you okay. can kind of see where everything's going. It's like, here's the big argument. Here's where maybe someone gets sick. We know that, you know, he's going to have to make a decision now about how, you know, he kind of, you know, blurs the line between his private life and, and his public life. It was, you could kind of see where everything was going. So I, I, I never, I, I was never bored. And I, I, I always liked this film. I just thought if he had kept up that sense of adventure that you see in the first half, it could have been an, an, like a five-star show. Okay, okay. Now, it does sound like it rips along for a lot of it, and I love the sound of that opening scene. So, stars-wise, I'm really curious. It's, clearly, it's not five stars, but is it four stars? I think so, yeah. I mean, the storytelling is brilliant. Uh, the, the the performance from, from Carrie Mulligan, I mean, just watch it light up award season. Um, there yeah. will definitely be nominations there for her. Uh, the work that Cooper's put into this, despite the fact that, as I say, he has just delivered an impersonation. Put it this way, it's more Rami Malek in Bohemian Rhapsody than Taron Egerton in Rocketman. Except, yeah. except less annoying than Rami Malek. You know, this is a far better film than Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, uh, but I had a great time with it. I did see some flaws. I just maybe just at times wanted it to be, you know, a little less conventional. Um, but I still had a fabulous time. And you know what? I will watch it again over the Christmas on Netflix. Yeah. But what I will say to people is Cooper designed this film for a cinema. So if you can yeah. see it in if you can see it in one over the next three weeks, do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, Maestro is in cinemas now. Chris Wasser gave it four stars and is highly recommending you see it in the cinema first, which is what Bradley Cooper wants. Chris, thanks a million. Thanks a million, John. Up next, a different take on the festive season. Some people take the straight path in life. But at Arizona State University, we respect your twists and turns. They make our online students more driven to excel in their professional lives. That's why our personalized suite of services empowers you with innovative resources and staff that sticks with you. Make your next turn with one of our 300-plus programs at ASU, number one in innovation for nine consecutive years. Visit us at asuonline.asu.edu to learn more. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. So this is Christmas, the first line of the John Lennon classic, but also the latest documentary from the unique Irish filmmaker, Ken Wardrop, whose previous films include the amazing His and Hers, which saw older Irish women discuss meeting their husbands and their courtship over many years. He also gave us the delightful Making the Grade, all about piano lessons. In So This Is Christmas, Ken takes a less usual view of Christmas when he chats to five different people who all have varying degrees of trepidation 
and in some cases disdain for the festive season. There's a single mother worrying about Santa, a newly widowed father hoping to keep Christmas traditions alive, to the bachelor who puts out a sign saying, Santa, stop here. It's a Christmas movie, less ordinary, and I'm delighted to be joined again by Ken. Ken, how are you? All's good. I have one of those wintry issues, a bit of a chest infection, but we'll get through it. There's probably something fitting in that with this movie that you have a little chest infection that life isn't always going to plan. But anyway, so listen, is, you know, my views on Christmas sometimes are I love it and I particularly love it since the kids came along, my kids. But at the same time, sometimes, you know, it baffles me that we spend so long getting ready for this one day. And sometimes you take a step back and you go, you know what, it's going to be the 26th of December soon. Was that kind of where this began for you, that you wanted to look at Christmas from a different angle and say, you know what, maybe it isn't all it is to everybody? Yeah, I think so. Um, I will say the genesis probably came from the fact that when I was 12 years of age, my granny passed away and she was living with us at the time. So it was a bit traumatic, uh, to say the least, and really, I think, impacted on our Christmases for quite a few years after that. She was very mm-hmm. close to my mom, so uh, it became Grand's anniversary more so than Christmas Day. Now, like all great Irish mammies, mum tried her best, but one of my, I suppose, biting memories of it would be my mum, you know, um, sad, crying, you know, um, remembering Gran. And and this would have lasted, obviously, for a few years. And then it it kind of returned to a little bit more of a normal scenario. But it started my kind of, um, my own, I suppose, dread of that season approaching because it would be a melancholy time. And anyway, so I suppose that stayed with me. And when you're searching for ideas for films, you know, you go back into your past and this kind of um, came back up. And as soon as I mentioned a Christmas film to the producer that I work with, his eyes lit up and thought, oh, there's a there's a new one, a Christmas documentary. Maybe it could become a seminal piece and it goes on forever and ever. So I think it was kind of a combination of a, a germ of an idea that kind of other people got on board very quickly. And then uh, lo and behold, I'm out making it. I have to say there was also another little scenario that from my personal perspective to um a family member, you know, single mom and would be struggling financially and would find Christmas a very complicated time because obviously trying to make it extra special for her two children and uh, would put herself under a lot of pressure. And I suppose those expectations were never met and it would all fall asunder, as a lot of Christmases do for so many people out there, you know, and... uh, yeah, so there was lots going on in my head. Uh, yeah. Typically, I just wanted to explore the season. I, I didn't want to go into the commercialization because I feel that that war is gone. We lost it. And <laughs> we are, you know, we've, we've embraced that. So it want, I wanted it to be something a little bit different to just kind of say it that, you know, you're not alone if you're out there and life isn't as perfect as it is in the movies or on Instagram. You know, there are other people sharing um, difficult times, you know, Mm. and I think in that, I hope I achieve something. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to be Scrooge, and I'm sure you're done, but, you know, a day where the world is telling you, you know, be happy, it's the greatest day of the year and all, like, there's a lot of bullshit in that. And I just think it's great that, you know, you stand back and you go, some people are going to find this day really hard. And listen, the, as always, the people you found in this are, are incredible. Like, are you? do you just have your ear to the ground or are, are you just always, I don't know, looking out for people or how do you find these people? Yeah, look, we go out, we always cast net wide when we look, go looking for characters and especially in a project like this where you're going to be uh, dealing with complicated subjects. So we would have gone to the very top, you know, to charities and organisations within sort of uh, spaces that we were kind of thinking of exploring. Invariably, that can be kind of complicated because ultimately they have to protect their uh, clients and the people they work with, mm -hmm. but gain a lot of information and understanding of scenarios at that stage. And then we go back into our own worlds and start to work out from there. And when I say us, there's always a team. And I was blessed to work with some great researchers on this, in particular, the two lead researchers, Anne-Marie and Pam, uh, just really uh, put the heart and the soul into it. And I kind of knew, guessed that when we started out, that ultimately we'd kind of fall back into their own locations. Because I, I tend to tell the team to like, let's get on our, out and about and look to our own worlds first. And Marie, for example, is from Monastreven, which is next door to Port Arlington, where I'm from. So obviously being a Midlands man and a lot of my films obviously feature Midlands people, I was delighted. So Anne-Marie, I think, walked the streets of Mount Melek, Port Leash, uh, Durrow, Abbey Leaks, or wherever, and just chatted to people and spread the news about the types of stories we were looking for and uh, managed to find some characters as did Pam. And, uh, you know, it's like, for example, one of the, the character from Gort, um, the council worker, actually is a colleague of her dad's. So, you know, okay. we didn't, you know, this is the reality within our own worlds. They're always special people, you know, they can go on, uh, on, um, noticed for a lot of time. And I think again, when, with my films, I do start to approach people, people, uh, tend to be a little bit surprised that I'm interested in them and their stories because they consider themselves ordinary, I guess. And actually, you know, Everybody deep down has a story to tell and um, you can extract beautiful, honest, authentic and extraordinary stories from those types of people. Absolutely. And you're really doing that. And that council worker in this one, a man called Shane, is 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 a gorgeous guy. And and his story is is revealed in snatches. You also have Mary, a 40-something woman who's explaining, you know. Living with an eating disorder, Christmas can be can be very strange, and it just makes you think that these people are are all around us. They're next door to you and me, where where we're both talking now, and you, and you do that so well. Can I just ask you about the character Jason? Uh, he's the he's the newly widowed father, and he's attempting to keep Christmas traditions alive, and he's working so hard in his day job to to keep to keep the, the ship afloat. And, you know, 
like I'm a dad, but that doesn't matter. Like, I mean, just as a human, it, it's heartbreaking at times, his loss and his, you know, that Beckett thing, we can't go on, we must go on. He typifies that. Was that hard? I know you're making a movie, but was it hard to be in the kitchen with him and, and you and the crew listening to that? It must have been very emotional. It was very, very emotional. I probably get emotional talking about it. At the same time, myself and Jason met uh, several times before we ever appeared with a camera. And we sure. And, you know, I knew when I sat with Jason, I was in the presence of someone incredibly special. And yeah. Someone that I think needed to go through this for a cathartic reason. And I don't know, his love for Roxy was so pure, so um, just so beautiful that I think he, oh gosh, I don't know how to put this, John. It just felt right for him to do this. Yeah. So um, it all felt sort of, I I have to say we were such a close-knit crew. There were actually nine of us because we were shooting on 35 millimeter. So normally making a documentary, you might have two or three other characters around you, which is difficult enough. But to have nine people who were all fishing with equipment, you know, throwing in random measuring tapes up to eyes, it's just quite an extraordinary. So this was going beyond what would really be normal. And Jason just was in the moment. He was just channeling something that he needed to to just do for himself and the boys. And they're mm-hmm. so strong and so together. And they welcomed us into our home and made us part of their family during the process. I would like to say it was awkward for us, but it wasn't because of how they met, made us feel and that they wanted us to know that, you know, their grief is, is incredibly uh, hard, obviously incredibly personal. And yet they wanted to share it because they needed to share it. And Jason said, if this helps one person, I will have done some good deed. So, you know, I think he had that motive and I, I was so appreciative of him. And um, he also had mentioned that himself and Roxy had sat and watched um, the uh, COVID project that I did c- cocooned uh, together. And I think just the fact that they'd seen that and then suddenly, you know, out of the blue and they talked about it and it resonated with them. And and then out of the blue, I appeared, the chap that had made that and he remembered that they'd had shared a moment around that because they were yeah. not only living through their own uh, battle battles, but they were living through it during COVID times. So I suppose, anyway, we just connected. And, yeah, uh, I was very uh, privileged. We all were privileged to share in some incredibly special moments with that family, and I will never forget them. To be honest. I- I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, it's just one of the many special moments in the sometimes sad, but sometimes uplifting. So this is Christmas, which is still in select cinemas. I've been talking to its director, Ken Wardrop. Ken, lovely as always to talk to you. Thank you, John. Really appreciate this. I can't say I dislike Christmas, but it's a huge fuss for 24 hours. The jacket's stuffed? Yes, please. Cards, wrapping, paper, a honey wreath. 
but everything is much more expensive this year. I just put up the Christmas tree to fit in with everybody else. If I didn't pop a tree, it would be just like another time to me now. Did you know Christmas is cancelled? It's because I told Santa it's good and he died laughing. <laughs> a little flavour there of the sweet and sometimes sad, So This Is Christmas. And you heard me talking to its director, an old friend of the show, Ken Wardrop. That is it for this week. Next week on the show, we're bringing you one of our Screen Time specials, which I'm calling Best Kept Secret, where myself, Chris Wasser and Aoife Barry are going to be bringing you a conversation about some movies that we feel don't get the love or the recognition they deserve, and maybe some you've never even heard of. So that will be a little Screen Time special next week. In the meantime, I'll remind you that you can listen to this show every Friday as a podcast, every Saturday at 6pm here on News Talk, and it is available as a podcast every Friday from 5pm on Newstalk.com or the News Talk app. And you can listen back to shows going back years, which includes interviews with all sorts of people, from Ricky Gervais to Will Ferrell to this week where you heard Julia Roberts. So there is a whole archive of stuff you could listen back to if you're interested in hearing more from stars of the TV screen and indeed the film screen. That is it for this week. Enjoy the remainder of your weekend and have a safe week ahead and I'll talk to you next week.